so today we're going to be, um, let's see here. I was praying and thinking a lot about kind of what to speak about for this Sunday, because as you guys know, we, you know, we're kind of just, we've wrapped up our Zechariah series, um, you know, and we're kind of in this kind of in-between part where we're just sort of, we like to give ourselves breathing room sometimes in the sermon series, you know, like to step outside of the books for a bit and just to talk, you know, maybe a little bit more topically or just sort of big picture about where our church is, you know, what, what we're thinking about, what we're convicted about um, before we kind of start our next series. And, you know, as Phil and, and Michael and me were kind of brainstorming for some things, um, you know, and, and Michael and I kind of like coincided in like a similar kind of thought where we were, you know, we were just praying and thinking about things. And um, we kind of both came to this idea of kind of coming back to the Great Commission. At least for me, that was kind of the way I was, I was thinking about it. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, it was like praying and just thinking through various topics and I'm sorry to Lisa because I like changed my mind like three times and she's, she's like, yep, yeah. <laughs> made it difficult uh, to pray the worship set, you know, but I was kind of praying Friday morning. I was just thinking, and, you know, I know the great commission is something that, you know, most Christians have grown up hearing many times. Um, but I, I do think that we, we don't hear it enough. Um, I do think that, um, that the difficulty with Christian life is always, it's not, it's, it's rarely not knowledge, right? Uh, it's usually that, that the call to be a Christian is, you know, there's so many times we forget and we lose sight um, of what God has called us to, what God has given us to be responsible for. Um, in the past, I've kind of likened it as if we're like kind of marathon runners who just frequently, like every 10 minutes go off and, you know, start sniffing the flowers or, you know, set up a picnic blanket in the, in the grass. And, you know, and you just forget that like, oh, I'm running a marathon. Like you forget that there is a kind of this overall direction and this call that God has given us in our lives. And, and I, I think that happens a lot. You know, I think that happens to me and, um, you know, it happens to churches. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we lose sight of what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And I think the Great Commission is, one of the very centers of that and so i wanted to spend some time reviewing that for us today and you know and to call you know and, and to you know maybe even take a look at practically some application of that like in our context in the modern world in our church um a call for discipleship culture in our church what would that look like for us to kind of renew um recommit um for those of us who are kind of feeling like oh, we've been out of that you know um because that's something we've we've talked about many times and um that's, I feel like a, that is a core identity of our church. And so that's something we want to kind of focus on today. Um, so yeah, so I want to take us first through the Great Commission, um, just to kind of walk through it, talk about what it is, um, bring out some points, I think, that are challenging for us, um, they're encouraging for us, and then I want to talk about the application of it in the modern world. The Great Commission, um, here it is, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, this is at the very end of the chapter of Matthew, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's that latter half, you know, the go therefore make disciples is, 
is commonly known as the Great Commission. It's, you know, this is what people refer to usually when they talk about this Great Commission, this Great Command. And I want to just briefly kind of walk through the different aspects of this momentous statement that Jesus made that in some ways has shaped history, <laughs> definitely has shaped history, that's shaped the church, has shaped everything since, the, since that moment when he gave that phrase, when he gave that, that command. And it starts with this, right? It starts with all authority in heaven on, on earth has been given to me. I think this is important because I think we oftentimes leave it out. And we just think of it as, okay, Christians are supposed to go and make disciples. But the, the sentence before that, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, is really this huge proclamation, this huge mind-blowing proclamation about a shift in reality and a shift in kingdom that has come. So what has happened at this point is that Jesus had literally risen from the dead. Right? He had been crucified, he'd been put to death by the powers of the world, but he did not stay dead. He rose up triumphantly in glory and in power, never to die again. Um, scripture talks about him as being the forerunner for all of us who will one day experience the same kind of thing. And so, and so Jesus is this risen king, and he, and he says, you know, he now announces apostles, you know, I'm victorious now. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me from the Father. I'm in control of everything here. There's, a, you know, in some sense, a changing of the power, the, the king that is currently running things that is in control. You know, one might think of it as, you know, whenever, whoever really is in charge, you know, wherever the government is, wherever we elect as leaders, you know, definitely, you know, they run things, they make things happen, you know, their decisions affect us, you know, things like that. And, and so, you know, in this case, Jesus, Jesus kind of given that kind of vibe, you know, he's saying that, you know, there's a new kingdom have come, you know, Roman Empire, yep, before that, all these things, here's a new king, I'm authority now, and go now and proclaim this new kingdom and proclaim this new reality. So I want to talk about a little bit what's different about the kingdom and reality. Um, what is different after Jesus was resurrected than what was before? Um, and there's, there's huge differences. I think that sometimes we just, you know, as Christians, we just like are used to things and we don't necessarily see um, that was so different um, for them. What's different is that the power of sin and death are removed. Um, you know, there's, before then, you know, people lived in this distance um, from God because of sin. They, there was no forgiveness of sins apart from the sacrificial system. You know, so one of the first things he's announcing is that there is forgiveness of sins. There's reconciliation. There's peace between people and God. And, and that paves the way for this new kind of relationship that people are able to have with God because of the death of Christ, right? So the power of sin, the forgiveness of sin, you know, is, is, that's a major change that's happened. But another major change that's happened is that people no longer have to live in sin. Before, you know, Romans talks about how people are without Christ. It's like you just, your choices are this kind of sin or that kind of sin. <laughs> that's kind of who you are. And that's kind of how you've, you know, yes, you have freedom, but everything you do is opposed to God because you don't know him because you've, God has not been revealed to you. And now there is the power to live a God-pleasing, holy, and a righteous life that's given to us through the Holy Spirit. And so there's this power now to live lives that actually do reflect God, that in never in before this was never possible at all for any of them. So 
There's forgiveness of sins. There's power to overcome sin. I think these are all scriptural realities that that they talk about. And finally, I think there's one other thing that I think we oftentimes forget. The power of death is also removed. Jesus spent most, a lot of time of his ministry healing and raising, you know, the sick, the lame, the crippled. You know, these are all instances of a fallen and broken world, disease, suffering, death. And before then, there was no solution. It was just, you know, we got exiled from God's presence, and now we're just doomed to die. Um, I don't know. Like, that's it. That's, that's, the whole, that's the whole picture. And then they knew of some kind of coming sort of salvation, perhaps, but they didn't know what it was. That was kind of what they lived with. After this, right, this change in new reality and kingdom is that the power of death is removed. And that's what Jesus was proclaiming, and that's what he was doing, and that's what he gave his apostles the power to do. And you see in, later on, the apostles are healing people. They're driving out demons. You know, they're showing you know, that, this, that Jesus has come now, and there's a new reality. And I think that's hard for us sometimes to really accept because we, you know, especially in the Western world, um, we live oftentimes in a society that is just so just stripped clean of miracles, you know, appealing of, you know, like demon possession. We're like, I don't know the last time I heard her talking about that. um, But, you know, I, I would challenge us to think about, you know, that being a central kind of indication theme in Acts in the New Testament. Um, that indicate the fact that like there is a new power at play and it's interesting because when we look at actually the majority world outside of the U.S. we look at Africa and Asia and like America um, we see those same things at play we see like powerful demonstrations of the spirit to show that like a new change a new order has come no longer do we have to live in hopelessness um, in sickness in death and things like that now I'm not saying there isn't suffering you know, I'm not saying that, you know, aren't, there aren't difficult things in our lives. But yes, I think when I look at scripture, when I look at this, I see the age of Jesus is an age of victory over those things. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of like differences going on, you know, when Jesus makes this momentous statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the context for the statement, go and make disciples. So go and make disciples isn't, you know, this is some, you know, good Christian idea, or this is, you know, just some duty or obligation. It was, it's directly linked to this previous phase. And so it's the idea that, you know, Jesus is king now. So now he's going to send out his people as disciples to proclaim this new reality, to proclaim this new kingdom. So that's what you see with the disciples in Acts. You know, you see them get up in front of thousands of people and say, Hey guys, the guys you crucified, he's now resurrected. He's now king. And you see this incredible thing where these disciples were, you know, were followers and learners of Jesus have now been tasked to multiply, right? They've now been tasked to make new disciples. You know, they themselves were disciples. Now they're called to make new disciples. And what does it mean to make disciples? Well, that's the latter part of that phrase. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe the all I have commanded you. And people kind of noted that these two things kind of form the contour of sort of like what it means to disciple somebody, right? From baptism, which represents conversion. So he's not talking about raising up good Christian mature kids. You know, he's not just talking about that. He's saying, go actively 
baptized people who previously did not know about Jesus and had nothing to do with Jesus, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. It's converting, like conversion, right? It's, it's calling people to it. Not only that, but it's also teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So not only bring people in who nothing to do with Jesus before, um, and that's a lot of times what churches do, and they just leave them at that. And they're like, okay, now you're saved. You know, you're good now. Um, and no, that's not, that's not what discipleship is. It's not just, okay, you said a prayer, you now believe in Jesus, you, ch- you check off the boxes, now move on to the next person. No, now, now that you've baptized them, you brought them in, you're called, you're commanded to teach them, to observe all that command, to guide them, to mentor them, to train them into becoming what you are. And part of that process implicitly, this is kind of this recursive thing that's going on, but this is a CS joke if those of you guys do it, <laughs> but go therefore make disciples. Part of that training is that at the end of the day, they're going to go off and make disciples too. And so what people have kind of powerfully shared before is that your discipleship process is not complete if they aren't making disciples. You know, if you've only taught them to be Christian and just, you know, taught them to kind of do certain things and don't do certain things, you haven't really discipled them because the end of discipleship is, you know, they're doing what you're doing, which is discipling other people, teaching now other people about who they are, about who Jesus is. And that's kind of the process of discipleship, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that it commands you. And finally, Jesus closes with the same idea. It's so encouraging because it's such a difficult task. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He knows that this is, this is something hard, right? There are 12 disciples in a city that just crucified their leader, you know, in an empire that was known for its brutality. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what these two things, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age do is they kind of encapsulate this command. They say, it's, you know, it's all about Jesus. And he's the one who sends us He's the one who will make it happen. It's not us. It's not whether I'm eloquent, whether I know the answers to things, whether I'm smart enough, I'm brave enough. No, it's Jesus' presence that goes with us. And and that's the reason why Christianity is what it is today, right? That's the only reason why. It's not because Peter was super brave. You know, it wasn't because John was awesome or whatever. It was because Jesus was them and empowered them even in their weakness to carry out this call. And so that's the Great Commission. Uh, As you can tell, I actually highlighted various things there, but didn't go through. So I want to share some critical points for us. Just think about as we just reflect on the Great Commission. Yeah, first, I think I've, you know, really hit this point that Great Commission comes from Jesus' authority and power as king. It's not just, it's not just some kind of some Christians preference, like, oh, some Christians like to convert people and, you know, some don't, you know, that's no, it's, you know, this is, this is not some church's strategy. It's not some flavor of Christianity. It is Jesus's authority and power of King sending out and commanding all Christians. It is not presumptive to go out and try to convert people um, in that way. Um, I think that's something we, we really have to challenge nowadays because I think in our culture, it, it feels presumptive, right? It feels like, who am I to go and change somebody else's, you know, beliefs or religion or, or that, this and that, right? Um, and it would be if it was just some kind of man-made system. If it was just some like kind of man-made philosophy, like, you know, you know, I think this is the way to think. Okay, then it's presumptive. And I, I shouldn't be going out there and, you know, not none of that, right? 
But the fact that it comes from Jesus' authority and power of king, who we believe is the risen king who's in charge of the world, who is God over the universe, who commands and sends out his people as messengers, you know, then it's different, right? Then it's like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's what we're called to do. And if that clashes with culture, then that clashes with culture. And I'm not saying, you know, you have to do that in a, you know, intolerant way or in a way that's not respective of people, uh, respecting people. Um, but the fact is that this comes from Jesus, his authority and power as king. I think what's so amazing about that is, you know, to study kind of the modern sort of missionary movements is to, is to see this in action. It's to see that, you know, with or without us, this has been going on. Uh, this is currently happening today. I was reading a book for seminary called The New Faces of Christianity, which was actually published about like 18 years ago. So it was not that new. Um, but at the time, it was pretty groundbreaking. And it was talking about the, the striking reality that the dominant center of Christianity is rapidly becoming African and Asian and Latin American, aka not Western, right? And so there's a whole shift just because of the numerical you know, growth in these different places and the lack of numerical growth in the West is that there's just, you know, by some dates, I think it may have even passed by now, I'm not sure, there's just gonna be more African, Latin American and Asian Christians than there are gonna be Western Christians, right? And that's just, that's what's happening. And it's, it's a crazy and amazing reality because so many people associate Christianity with Western culture, with this or that. And, and you know, and, and this reminds me of this again, that Christianity is not a Western religion, right? Christianity is not just American religion or, or a white religion or whatever you want to call it, right? And that's sometimes what people kind of think of it as. No, Christianity is, you know, this is God's mission and God's call. It's not confined to just the ideologies or the races of certain people. Um, it may be affected by those things. It, sure, it certainly has been over the years, but it is above those things. I love this quote from this book. It talked about the Bible translation process as being a central aspect of shaping this. Um, what's so amazing about Christianity is that you go to a different place and you translate the Bible into their language, right? It's not like, um, it's actually in contrast to a religion like Islam, where you don't translate the Quran into different languages. It's just in Arabic, you know? And so you got to go learn Arabic and learn the culture. You know, but Christianity, you go to these countries and you find metaphors in the original language and you find these things and you translate, you know, because it's, it's, it's a Christianity that's not just confined to Hebrew, Hebrewism or Judaism, but for the world. He said this quote, once the Bible is in a vernacular, it becomes the property of that people. It becomes a Yoruba Bible, a Chinese Bible, a Zulu Bible, and the people in question have as much claim to it as the nation that first brought it. It is no longer English or French. Um, I think that's just, I don't know. It's just, I was like, wow, yeah, that's true. You know, like this is, you know, no longer just confined to sort of what people think as Christianity in the West. I think the implication of this is also that we don't have to do it ourselves, right? His presence will be with us. And this is something I've highlighted and, it's something that we have to lean on if we're going to fulfill this commission, right? We are just the messengers. We're not, you know, we strategize, we do these things, but I mean, let's, let's face it, you know, this is a very difficult task. And I'm encouraged by just studying through church history, seeing how the first missionaries, the apostles were uneducated, powerless, cowardly people that God used. 
I think about the first missionaries that like, you know, from the West that did that, that started sort of the modern missionary movement in that sense um, from America and all these people. And I just think about like how they had no idea what they were doing. I mean, this is the 1700s. They have no idea what other cultures are. They don't have the resources like us where they can Google and they can learn. And, you know, they're just like, Yo, let's just get on a ship and let's just go. You know, we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> I'm like, that's a horrible missionary strategy. Like, you know, what are you guys thinking? You know, what about contextualization and learning? You know, and, you know, of course, they, you know, those are good things. But, you know, it shows that God is able to use, you know, people who have no idea what they're doing, but who are just simply willing to be faithful and who are just looking at the Great Commission, same time, just being like, I think that's what this says. I think that's what we're called to do. Let's just do it, guys. And that's what they did. Second is, I think the Great Commission, I think, challenges us on the definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is a disciple here, an active follower of Jesus Christ who leads others to follow him as well. A Christian is a disciple. And I think we've kind of, you know, in Christianity, we've sort of made disciple a spiritual word that kind of means something floaty or something Christianity. The word disciple is, is really kind of like a word of like the sense of a committed follower, a learner, an apprentice, right? So if you think about like, you know, a blacksmith back in the day, like, you know, how do you learn how to be a blacksmith? Well, you apprentice yourself to a blacksmith and then you follow him around, you do everything that they do, right? And then eventually, you know, you learn and you, you know, you're able to do that and you teach the next person, right? That's like this kind of apprenticing system. So I like the apprentice word apprentice sometimes better than the word disciple. But it's this idea, it's not just somebody who believes, right? It's somebody who believes, but who practices, who is committed to following somebody else, right? And learning their ways and until they become that person themselves, right? And then I think in, the, in the, the ancient world during this time, I think it also included this aspect of a disciple is, just, is also somebody who tells other people about it, right? Um, so these three qualities that they believed, they followed, Right, they actively committed themselves to follow, and they told other people. And these are just givens. If you're a Christian, those are the three things you do. That's, that's, that's what you're like. And it's, it's difficult because I think we struggle with this culture over the last few hundred years where it's just been like Christian has been reduced to that first one. You believe. Okay, you believe? That's cool. You're a Christian now. I don't know if you would be a Christian in this context. I don't know if you could be a Christian if you did not also call yourself a disciple. And Jesus was very clear that disciple was not just this casual thing you can do on and off and you can do whenever you wanted to. Now, when he called disciples, do you remember what he said? Right? He said, come and carry the cross with me. You know, go where I'm going. You're going to follow me. And guess where I'm going? I'm about to be crucified for the world. I'm about to leave the world behind. I'm about to, you know, for the sake of the world, for God's will and kingdom, I'm about to be crucified. Right? And he says, anyone who wants to follow me, be prepared to carry your cross. I think we forget that, right? That's, that, that's part of just being a Christian, right? I think the second aspect of this is that, you know, Christian is a disciple and active follower of Jesus Christ who leads others to follow him as well. The original disciples, like they didn't finish this call, right? It's not like they made disciples of all nations and they're good. And that was their call and we're good now. You know, when they discipled the, the, the next generation of people, they told them the same thing, right? They told them, 
Now it's your turn to, to, to be the people that we were to you. And that's the only way that Christianity multiplied was through that process of, of just replication, of just multiplication. Finally, last point I wanted to make about this is that the call to make disciples is essential purpose of the church during its time in the world and God's plan for reforming the world. And break that down a little bit. The call to make disciples is the central purpose of the church during its time in the world. I think this is something we often forget because after a while, I think churches often lose their direction. They, they lose like their sense that they're going somewhere and they just simply are, right? They just simply, they focus more on maintenance, you know, making sure things are going smoothly, which is important, right? It's not, not important, but that's all that they stand for, right? Um, that's not at all the identity of the church. The call to make disciples is essential purpose of the church during its time in the world. As I think Michael or I think somebody else said that, you know, discipleship is not just a program of the church. It's the program of the church. It's what we do. And everything we do from worship, from cleaning up the church, from CGs, um, from whatever programs we have, all serve that one purpose of discipling and bringing others to know him. It's a central purpose. And it's also God's plan for reforming the world. I think as Christians, you know, I, I think there are a lot of good things that are going on, you know, in the civic arena about how we can sort of change and make certain things better. And those are aspects, those are things we should and ought to engage in. But I think the primary central piece of how God plans to change and to redeem and form a broken world is, I believe, through discipleship. Because I think the central problem in the world still is that people are not reconciled to God, that people don't know him, that people don't, you know, they don't, they don't love him, and therefore they don't love other people. That is this, that's kind of, that's kind of the hearts of what's been wrong with the world at the end of the day. And I'm not saying the other things aren't helpful. And so you can't really fully fix or change the world without addressing the deep brokenness that people have because of their distance and their disconnect with God. So I feel like that's, that's also kind of the way in which we're called to sort of be a part of all this is, you know, reconciliation between man and God only happens through sinners repenting, finding their joy and treasure in God. And I think this is something that, you know, I was challenged with in college. So I got momentarily distracted by the ambulance sirens so you know a little bit of time to um but i think this is something that like i in college you know i was kind of really challenged by um you know i grown up with this idea that christianity was something that you know you followed you practiced you believed but i think it was in college that I was first introduced the idea that it was directional that it was missional and that it was supposed to encompass my whole life it was supposed to be the new aim and direction of how i'm called to live and I've, I've seen that, you know, as a difference sometimes between Christianity and other world religions or even other forms of Christianity is that many times these other things are kind of like you're in a waiting room and you're just waiting and they're like, okay, well, entertain yourself while you're waiting. You know, here's some magazines, here's some things, you know, here's some TV shows. You know, you kind of, that's kind of how a lot of people treat life. Like, you know, you just kind of go through it, you know, and you just sort of entertain yourself while you're at it. I don't think that's it at all. I don't think that's how directional Christianity thinks of it at all. In New York City, we, we went to an escape room, 
you know, and there is a very clear purpose why you're in that room. You know, there's no, oh, let me make myself comfortable here. There's, we need to get out of this room in 60 minutes. Okay. So split, you know, you go do that. You go to this right now. We're, you know, are you working on this? You know, there's a clear sense of direction. Christianity is directional. And that was something I, I encountered, you know, through this church, through, through people in my lives who, who challenged me when I was in college, when I, all I thought about was my own career, my own ambitions, my own plans. They challenged me to think about something so much bigger. And they challenged me to subsume and to surrender my own plans and ambitions under this greater call of God. So to be like, what are my plans and purposes versus what God is doing in this world? And I got to see that, you know, through our ministry, through retreats. And I remember there's this one time when I had this retreat and we were at this retreat of Saturday night and, you know, how it is. And, you know, and then there's this, you know, I was talking and praying with this new person I met like, you know, two days ago you know, who I'd never seen in church before. And, and we're just praying and we're just confessing our sin and repenting and we're weeping in joy. And we're looking around at the room and we're seeing people everywhere. All the students are doing that. They're just confessing their sin. They're just confessing their pride. And, and they're just saying, wow, like, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's about God. And I remember me and just talking to this new guy, who's, you know, and we're just looking around and we're like, like, this is heaven, right? We're like, this is, this is it. Like, who cares about the other stuff in some ways? Like, you know, like, you know, it, it just became so much more, so much bigger than just kind of our own, our own purposes, our own goals of, of seeing things happen in our own lives. And I don't want to say that to denigrate, you know, the, the everyday things that we go through, but I think there is a new shape and direction to our lives when we come to realize this. So I want to spend some time to think about sort of how do we apply this in our modern context? How can we start applying this in our church? And I have some, I have some thoughts, some directions for us to think about. And Michael's actually going to take most of it. Um, so he's next sermon, he's going to actually kind of give us a little bit more practical, like how do we engage with the world in, in this great commission, specifically, concretely, all that stuff. But I want to kind of start with an overview and just to give us a few things to think about application in our modern context. First, it's rooted in personal discipleship with God, right? We can't forget when we talk about the Great Commission that worship is why we were made, you know, that we exist to worship first and foremost, and that missions exist because worship does not. I always go to this quote that, you know, I've been discipling some students right now in this class called 2-7 that we do. Um, every time I do it, uh, it always challenges me, even though it's been like, 12 years or something when I first did it. And there's this quote that I always go back to. I've probably said it multiple times, <laughs> but I always go back to it because this is the quote that, that, you know, really just kind of shaped my life in this kind of way. And it's by this guy named George Muller, who I always talk about. And he was this incredible man, just to kind of give a brief thing, who in the 1800s who started orphanages for like over 10,000 children in Britain at a time when that wasn't really a thing done. And he's known for... He's known for doing that without asking for money ever. He just prayed and God provided. Um, and his story is pretty incredible. Um, but here's the thing he says, you know, about personal discipleship. He's a man who did so much for God. Here's what he says about personal discipleship with God. He says this, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, 
see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. He goes on to say, you got a lot of things going on in your life, and that's fine. Those, a lot of those things are important. You should do. But he's like, there's one thing that is of supreme and paramount importance. This is the most important thing you will do your entire day. That you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years. 35 years, <laughs> that confused you. For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now after my experience, I especially recommend this point to my younger brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the phrase. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. He's just basically saying that the start of it all is joy in God. Without joy in God, you cannot truly effectively serve God. And he says, then what are you doing? <laughs> then what are you really doing in this world? I'm not saying this to knock the other things that we're doing, you know, um, but I'm saying that like this was the starting point and the source of his strength and the power and, and what led him to be able to do such incredible things for God, right? Was this, the secret of all true effectual service is joy in God, experiment, like experiencing God himself. I want to start with this because I think for a lot of us, you know, we may have lost that kind of pattern. You know, a lot of us might have grown up in church. We might learn sort of a devotional kind of pattern in our life, a rhythm with God. And, you know, because life is busy and very stressful, we might have just forgotten. And we just kind of like, okay, you know, I'm just, you know, I'll just see God at certain times. And, you know, I won't really, you know, there's too much going on. And I want to, I really want to challenge that because I, I think it's impossible to disciple other people if we're not actively following it after Jesus' footsteps, you know, in a regular daily kind of way. We have nothing to teach others if we're not obeying ourselves, right? We can only lead people as far as we are. It's that common phrase is. Um, discipleship has always been, come and do what I'm doing as I'm following Jesus. If I'm not doing, I'm not following Jesus, naturally I cannot disciple other people. So that's something I want to first, one of the things that we want to just challenge you guys as a church. Um, Phil and Michael were talking about this and you know, we wanted to give more specific kind of things for you, maybe small steps that you can take. And we wanted to offer perhaps a four to six weeks sort of seminar, refresher style kind of thing on having a sort of crafting your devotional life with God. And I say that because I know it looks different for, for mothers, for working professionals, for students. You know, I don't think we're going to try to put down this rule that you need to spend this amount of time at this time and all that stuff. You know, I understand that world, we're like, you know, we all have different um, just aspects to our lives that are confusing to work through. But we want you to have some kind of rhythm. We don't want you to just go through and just hear about God from other people, but not talk to God yourself, not obey and follow God yourself. And so part of that, you know, I think Phil's going to be teaching or leading that. Or, it's just for a step for you guys to start thinking about how can I start implementing some regular prayer some regular personal scripture and worship for myself so I can experience God in that way regularly. Starts with personal discipleship. Second, I think it's individual believers over church programs. And I think this is a really kind of big concept for me that has really changed my mind over the years. You know, I kind of think the way I used to think about it was that, you know, you talk to somebody who's not Christian, you bring them to church. You know, and you plug them into XYZ program, discipleship program, whatever, 
children's program, this thing program, right? And then the people who, you know, in that program are leading that, then they disciple and they teach those people, you know, and then my job's done. You know, I brought them here, that's good. And that's, I have to say, I don't think that's really the kind of way in which um, churches are really called to really disciple. I was reading this book called, the, it's called Replicate. And it's, it's a book that's talking about sort of like, you know, how do some churches have discipleship culture and how do others not? And they kind of highlight that as like a main difference is that a lot of churches, you know, you just kind of come and you just sort of watch and you kind of just consume, you know, and you, and discipleship basically is, oh, let me, you know, I found out about this great TV special, come and enjoy this TV special with me, right? It's like, there's no personal involvement in there. But he talks about the rare kind of churches that really do experience multiplication. They really do experience this kind of, like, you know, they, they really do impact in some ways the, the communities and the places around them. Um, he talks about this example of a Philippines pastor who you know, went on a month-long missions trip. It turned into 30 years in the field. So be careful about going on missions trips. Um, and it was like, it was like, you know, at the end of it, it was like 8,000 discipleship groups. They're just meeting at different coffee shops. They're just I mean, 8,000 discipleship groups, that's not a program. You, know, you, can't, you can't have one person teach 8,000 discipleship groups. They die, really, right? Almost 60,000 people in the church. You know, in the context of the Philippines, like how they're doing it is, you know, they're, they're, he's basically saying that, you know, we have a training system. You know, we try to do things, but it's almost impossible to manage. The organic nature of group formation forces us to release control. He says, sometimes we are forced to enlist newer Christians to disciple new believers. So they ask, how, many, how much of the New Testament have you read? And one guy's like, well, I've just finished Matthew. And they're like, great, you can go disciple this other guy because he hasn't read any of the Bible. So you're a whole book ahead of him. And that's kind of their mentality. And you know, I'm not saying that we necessarily need to adopt that, but there is a sense in which discipleship is the task of everybody. Like everyone's discipling everybody. And I think there is a sense in America sometimes that we, we feel that we're not equipped. You know, feel like, oh, you know, I don't want to lead them astray. Like, I don't know if I have the, the, the right, you know, I, that's just, you know, and, and that's not kind of the perspective at all. They're like, hey, you're not a perfect Christian. You're a new Christian. We get that. But you can lead a newer Christian. You know, you can do something. And there's that, that's what makes churches in some ways multiply and do all these things is, is when everybody kind of takes the heart and understands this concept that it's not few people are responsible. Everybody is able to do it. Everyone's supposed to do it. Everyone can be a part of it. I think when that culture catches on, I think it's really exciting. And I think you see like way more, a church is able to do way more than it just if a couple pastors are like trying to like do this or that and everything. I think that's something I want to encourage and challenge us, you know, for our church is to think about, you know, if, if I had to think like discipleship is my responsibility, it's my calling, God's called me to find people and to train them. You know, it's, it's up to me. I got to do this. I want to I challenge us to start to think in that direction and think about how we as a church can instead morph into this place where we're supporting each other in doing that. We're encouraging each other. We're training each other. You know, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. All right, we'll meet up this other person who is trying to do this as well. And you guys can talk through it and support each other and encourage each other. I would love to see our church kind of move in that direction. Next, I think... The context of discipleship is going to be in the business of our everyday lives. It's not just going to be when we go on a mission trips, when we set out the rare occasion, you know, to do X, Y, Z. It's going to be while we're 
mowing the lawn or doing the laundry or going to the grocery store or working or, or whatever those kinds of things. Because we all know that we have no time for anything else, right? We're already jam-packed in our schedules. You know, we, we do not have time to add another program, another event. That's why we don't want to just add another church program because nobody has time necessarily for those things. It's about learning how to be a part of God's discipleship work in the process of doing that. It's about taking hold of the activities that we're doing and seeking to witness in them. One thing I've just been just trying to do that has you know, been really helpful for me. So I'm a pastor and for a while at some point in my life, all the people I knew were Christian. That was a weird sensation. You know, I did not grow up Christian. So I went from a place where all the people I know were not Christian. And now I'm finally at this place where all the people I know are Christian. And it's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's not like, oh, yeah, you know. No, I felt like I was in such a bubble. I was feeling like a bubble and a bubble and a bubble, you know. And I was just challenged to be like, okay, what? Like, if I'm going to say this, like, how do I actually, how do I engage myself in actually being part of that process? And, you know, so I was just thinking about different ways to do that. And one way that's worked for me is tennis. Like, tennis is actually awesome. <laughs> Because people need hitting partners and people want hitting partners, you know, and, and you hit with them and they like hitting with you and they, they keep wanting to hit with you. And then you end up talking and you now you have a friend. And that's basically what happened with me. I have a tennis friend now. I'm like, I have no idea how I would have gone to know him if it weren't for tennis, because heck knows he would not be interested in hanging out with me if that weren't the case. <laughs> right. But now we're friends and we talk about other stuff, too. Now. Right. And that's awesome. <laughs> And, you know, I'm not saying tennis is the only way, you know, some of you guys are like, I have no time for any hobbies, right? But there are other things there. I think there is a creativity that we probably can harness, you know, if we're willing to put ourselves to think about, you know, Kirk gives, Kirk comes to mind, you know, we're in Target, right? And, you know, I was thinking about why I was at Target, right? Like shopping and doing things. And over here, Kurt's like, hey, look at these Ottomans, you know, and you know, and he just strikes the conversation, you know, and I was, I was mind blown, you know, when I first kind of had that experience, because I was like, you do this all the time? Like, this, that's tar- Like, how, how do you do that all the time? You know, like, I, I barely, you know, I, I do this on mission trip, like, how do you do this all the time when you're just doing random things, just talk to random people, and God works through you, and that's awesome, and I think, Kurt, you can correct me wrong, I think you said something along the lines that it just takes time and practice, and it's not natural for anyone unless you're extreme extrovert, you know, um, it just takes kind of a change in mindset about how you live your life, you know, to incorporate that into the everyday life of what you do. So yeah, next time you're in target, I challenge you to talk to somebody, you know, or I'm I'm kidding, but also, you know, I, I think there are, there are ways we can do that, you know? Um, So in the context of busy everyday life, and finally, I'm not going to focus on these things because really, uh, Michael is going to talk more about these things for a post-Christian skeptical American crowd. And there is actually a lot of upcoming literature, upcoming training um, that's coming from the church about how do we actually reach people that are post-Christian and who are skeptical. And one of the things that people are realizing is that the old ways of witnessing to people are failing or a lot of them are just not working anymore. And that's fine. The important thing we need to realize is a lot of times we tie evangelism and discipleship to those old ways. And we're like, well, they're not working anymore. So we should just stop doing evangelism and discipleship. No, that's not the case at all. 
right? People are finding new ways and realizing that in every culture and generation, you just have to adapt. There are different ways that you connect with people. There's different things. Some of the things we've realized about our generation is door to door and talking to strangers is a lot less effective. But you know what is relational witness is key. We need to connect with people. We need to find intentional ways to connect. And we are in a society that people are just more comfortable on their phones. You know, it's really hard for people to just connect with people. I think I read this quote. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head where, you know, when in public, people are just alone and in private, they're connected to the world, you know, and there's just kind of weird dichotomy where, you know, maybe in a public setting, everyone's just on their phones and just everyone's alone in their own world. That's a difficulty. That's a fresh difficulty that we need to challenge and we need to be like, how do we actually relationally witness to them? An old way used to be bringing people to church. I'm sorry, guys, but I don't think that is, I think that is a fading kind of way because most people don't want to come to church. If they come to church, they don't want to come back, right? And church is not a place for not Christians because they're not going to understand anything that's going on. They're going to be at worship. They're going to be like, why are we all singing? This is kind of weird. They're going to be listening to the message. They're like, I don't know anything of what's going on. And church is not really for people who aren't interested, you know, not really, you know. I think church is really for people for training up and equipping us to go out into the world to meet people where they're at in ways and contexts they can actually understand. So I think that's a fading thing, bring people to church. You can still do that. <laughs> I'm not saying you can't. That's your judgment, you know, how, how it'll fail or how it will fare. Um, but you know, that's <laughs> you are laughing. <laughs> I'm wrapping up, guys. I'm sorry, but this is um. And finally, I think last thing, you know, as I think there's something about knowing our audience and knowing how to engage meaningfully with all of the, all the political, all the social baggage um, that people now have with Christians. And we need to be able to bravely and meaningfully interact with people. And that sometimes actually does involve some kind of training, some kind of book reading, some kind of thinking through things ahead of time so that we are equipped, you know, so when somebody asks us about xyz thing we're not just like uh i don't know <laughs> you know i think there is this kind of growth that we can grow in you know in being able to kind of meet people where they're at i'm gonna end there um michael's gonna take on a lot of that more next um next sunday but i wanted to just do this i wanted to do this all as a encouragement for us to remind us again that the call that that discipleship culture is not just a thing that we want to do but is the thing that has always been from the beginning, the purpose and the calling of our church. And I wanna challenge us to think creatively about what it would look like for our church to grow in that. What would it look like for you? You know, whether that's, you know, stepping into that four to six week seminar thing and being like, okay, I'm gonna start, you know, implementing some kind of devotional life for myself. Whether it's, you know, talking about and starting a club about, you know, reading through a book about how do you talk to people about issues in Christianity in the modern world. There are plenty of books out there. I can re recommend a few. Whether it's whatever, you know, taking hold of this mission ourselves and being like, yeah, this is our responsibility. This is something we have been tasked by Jesus, our King himself, to do. Let's pray. Father God, I just, uh, God, I just, I lift up this whole thing to you, Lord, and this whole call that you've given us 
Lord, I just pray for our church. I know that there is a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncomfortableness, Lord, that naturally comes about, Lord, when we think about how you've challenged us to make disciples. And Lord, I just, I pray that you would just meet us where we're at, God. God, even just as we sang earlier, that though we're weak and poor, all we have is yours. Lord, I don't know, I don't think you expect that much from us, but you want to use us. And you want us to have the joy of seeing others come to healing, come to reconciliation with you. God, the joy of seeing someone who's lived their whole life apart from you, finally coming to see you for the first time, finally coming to come home to you and to experience that joy of, of just, wow, this is who I am. This is what I was made for. Lord, help us to, to, to desire that joy and help us to just find that more compelling and more challenging for more just important to us, Lord, such that we, we yeah, we, we put down everything else for the sake of pursuing that. Help us to just give us open doors and help us to be flexible and be creative as we think about, as we, as we have service days and as we have community events, as we think about how, God, you can use just the things that we're doing already. God, I just pray that you would just renew that heart for missions or that heart for calling people to you, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would use every single one of us. In Jesus' name I pray.